0: And so that's very humbling, right? To think that you can have a bunch of people from the region, from even the country, and yet still end up with the wrong team. So I think it's really important to get the team right. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of startups, what we find is the first country hire they make is the wrong hire. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just, it's almost like get it out of your system, right? Assume the first person you hire is gonna be a mistake, learn from your mistakes and then do a reboot. Um, And I think when we see companies have that honesty with themselves, um, they tend to do better. So that'd be the first one.
1: Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome to Tiny Dragon Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Titus Michalski, and he's the managing partner of Fresco Capital. So Titus, why don't you give us a bit of a, about your background and the startups you're in. Yes.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Elaine. My pleasure to be here, and thanks very much for having me. Um, I think in, in terms of my background as a, as a venture capital investor, uh, maybe I'll just highlight the three things that came together as to why I do what I do. Uh, So one is the the countries and and my journey across different locations. Um, I was born in Poland, grew up in Canada, and then lived in London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore. So with with that as a background, it's very natural that I look for founders that could be from anywhere, whatever, whether they have a, a different accent or a different culture, That's really not an issue for for us. Um, We're just looking for great founders that are trying to build amazing businesses. So that's one, and I think that's very important to highlight. Two, my background before venture capital was in public markets. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate enough to, to spend a lot of time with very successful entrepreneurs who had built these large public companies. And so I got to see firsthand what it took to get there and 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 then keep going right to keep building successful public companies. And then the third one was my own entrepreneurship experience. so in in investing in public markets, it was actually through also a startup itself, which was a hedge fund, so not a tech startup. Mm-hmm. And we started that in two thousand and two and ended up with an exit in two thousand and six. The, the company was called PMA and at the time it was a Decent-sized exit, $200 million U.S. Of course, oh. these days, numbers are a lot bigger, but back in, in that time of the cycle, that was considered quite successful and got uh, really hooked on entrepreneurship and working with entrepreneurs as part of my own experience. And so all those things came together for me to focus on venture capital and working with founders.
1: Great. So what kind of vertical industries do you invest in,
0: yeah, great question, because I think there's a wide variety of investor approaches. So we're very much in the thesis-driven approach, right? We have, our thesis focuses on three core themes. First is empowered talent. Second is holistic wellness. And third is sustainable loops. And across those three, we focus on software and data companies. So, the, of course, there's other parts to those those topics, but we only focus on software and data. And then bringing it all together, we don't see those as separate and distinct in, in their own little bucket, but really coming together when we think of um, this idea of living networks. Uh, these things are interrelated, and by having a positive impact on one, a lot of times you can influence uh, the other as well.
1: Mm. Can you explain a little bit more about what what do you mean by... Empower Talent and Sustainable And oh, so
0: Of course. So in each area, we can go pretty deep in, in detail. Yeah. Um, so I'll like, go like all example, the way. for example?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you some examples. So for us, empower Talent, it covers all the life cycle of learning, right? So everything from education that we traditionally think of, but at this point, even more importantly, is adult learning and how we are all essentially students. Right, And so we have companies that uh, have businesses selling through K through 12, like a company called Edpuzzle that does video um, and sells to schools. Um, another example of a company we have is called Yellow Brick, which is focused on alternative education and careers for adults. So things mm-hmm. like the movie industry, um, even sneaker design, you can take these online courses uh, to find career paths in these less obvious industries, but industries that a lot of people actually have a ton of passion about. So that's a couple of examples of empowered talent.
2: Mm.
0: Um, And then on sustainable loops, what we're looking at is how software and data can help with sustainability. So we're not the ones investing in solar farms or or carbon capture uh, on the hardware side, but we're looking at software um, and data solutions. So an example of a company that we invested in many years ago, it's called Risk Pulse, that then ended up being acquired by a larger entity. And they were one of the largest platforms for using weather data Mm. to then figure out how would that impact your supply chain. So this is a super topical issue now. And they were quite ahead of the curve more than a decade ago, starting when realizing that this would be a core business issue. So we're always on the lookout for opportunities like that, where you can use software and data to, to drive real value for businesses and, and of course, for society.
1: Mm, okay. And then there was a the third one.
0: <laughs> yes, holistic wellness. Yes. Um. So that one should be relatively straightforward. We, we do invest in, in especially digital health. Uh, the ah. things we don't invest in are... Uh, drug discovery and medical devices so we're not doing life sciences um, we're doing things more on the digital side and our sweet spot there is it's important that it has to be evidence-based and actually work mm. right? so we we stay away from companies that are purely marketing driven and can't actually prove what they're doing um, and so that's important for us on, on one side Um, But on the other side, also, we're not going to get involved in something that needs six or seven years for FDA approval. That's just not our expertise.
1: Mm. So that's more lifestyle-driven type of holistic wellness? Yeah, it's a a bit of both.
0: Uh, uh, As a specific example, and, and coming back to the overlap between these themes, I'll highlight a company which is named Thalamus and started with a focus on doctor residency in the U.S., mm. right? It's no secret there's there's a shortage of high-quality doctors. It's also not a secret that it's really hard to become a doctor and really expensive in, in terms of education. And part of that is the residency process itself. After you have gone through the, the more theoretical aspects of the education, you, you go to work at a at a hospital. And so that residency process in the U.S., historically, has involved students using their own credit cards to fly around the country for job interviews to see which hospital will bring them on as as, as a residency, right? If you've already got your student debt, the last thing you need is is more credit card debt related to, in this case, travel. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on on the flip side, the institutions, it's a nightmare to manage this because this is all happening at the same time. These hospitals, they're not really designed for mass interviews, and so it's not their skill set. So Thalamus, our company, created a software and data platform that, as you can imagine, during the pandemic was particularly helpful Mm -hmm. for these institutions to realize the value. But just as importantly, it was never positioned as a pandemic solution. It was positioned as the future of healthcare and healthcare talent. Right. Mm-hmm. So, this is an example of a company that you know, clearly crosses over between the talent and the holistic wellness side. Um, and and you can even you know make a case that the sustainable loops aspect is embedded there as well, because suddenly you have a lot less people flying and, and you know doing video interviews instead. Um, that's an example of a company, and, and to us, an ideal scenario where everything aligns with the core business model, and right. therefore. The bigger the company gets the more successful it gets the more positive the, the impact through our thesis
1: yeah okay yeah it definitely feels like you you do have a mission for for your company so it's not just about money <laughs> like uh the the story that we're see unfolding now in silicon valley with the uh, open ai right yeah
0: yeah I and mean, to be fair to that that whatever ends up happening there um, i think a lot of the people involved in OpenAI are very much mission driven mm. and they believe this, the stakes are very high. Uh, and so I think there it, it actually is about what different people believe in terms of the mission, um, probably more so than than the financial side. But, but of course, there's a lot of money at stake, too. So it's, right. it's hard to disentangle the two.
1: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, in this podcast, what we're very interested in, and especially your background, and you know, having lived in so many different countries, is uh, how do tech startups figure out their product market fit, especially when it's going to foreign markets? Yeah. Do you have some interesting stories to, to share there, like with all your experience with the tech startups?
0: Yeah, for sure. We've got our stories. There's also lots of other companies that have, have tried different things and had various results. I think one that jumps to my mind because it covers multiple countries and cultures is a company we invested in about 10 years ago called Pipedrive. So we invested in, mm. in their seed round and most people are familiar with Salesforce as, as the world's largest CRM. Pipedrive, depending on who you talk to, is is number two and, and certainly right up there as a, a legitimate competitor and alternative for especially smaller teams. Um, so when we first invested in Pipedrive, we actually did it remotely at that time, it was before Zoom, so it was using Skype, right? right. And, and wow. Skype is famously an Estonian company, but I think at the time, a lot of people felt like that was an exception and Estonia being a tiny country, how many more startups could there be coming from Estonia? And our view was that there actually, no, there was some really interesting entrepreneurial things going on there. And so the founders were all from Estonia and they were doing it their way. The first thing that I think a lot of investors might have struggled with was there was six co-founders.
2: Uh. Right? And
0: I think for a lot of Silicon Valley investors, when they would hear that, they, they would get confused and, and feel it's not optimal. Um, but we were really excited. We did our own due diligence about the product, the team, and other things, and ended up investing, um, and then met the founders for the first time in Silicon Valley. They had moved to Silicon Valley from Estonia and and were based there, and everyone who spent time in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley gets familiar with the culture that that everyone is super friendly. Even if they totally disagree with you, they won't necessarily say it directly, And, and so there's a certain style of communication. But these founders were totally different they never smiled they (laughs) would always talk they would always talk about what's wrong with the product and so it was a very different type of discussion and one that we really appreciated one that we really liked but if you were used to everyone always being super friendly and, and always giving you all the positives it would have been difficult to get past that cultural disconnect Um, Whereas Mm. for us, because we had experience in in different types of cultures, um, we knew that this was just the style, right? Right. So it's like culture to
1: be more straightforward and not. (laughs) Yeah. And I think times
0: are changing where at some point um, some of this may blend together, but certainly for for that generation growing up in in a certain backdrop, um, that was the style that of communication that that they had. And again, I don't want to generalize. I'm sure there's lots of people in Estonia that smiled, even in that (laughs) generation too. Uh, But these were some hardcore founders who were really serious and were really open about challenges. So for us, that was a, a great positive. And then looking at market expansion in other countries, we helped them quite a bit in Asia. To their credit, they did a lot in the rest of the world on their own. Asia can present some unique challenges. So reviewing the markets in Asia with pipe drive, Japan actually ended up being a market that they prioritized, knowing that it would take time by knowing that they were going to put in some investments and have to wait for the results. And then the second thing that was a challenge for them was they were a product that was really all about self-serve and it was Mm -hmm. a simple go to market marketing based Uh, but in Japan, it's quite a unique situation so we strongly suggested they they work with local partners Uh, right and it it took a little time to figure out but we ended up finding the right partners for them Um, they ended up working closely with those partners for several years and then were able to finally do it on their own Uh, but that process of deciding on which market to enter obviously spending time in the market finding the partner all of that journey i think was really important to do in a methodical way Mm. Um, and, and to the pipe drive team's credit, they, they maintained their commitment, right? They didn't give up at the first sign of challenges. Um, so that was in Japan. And then another interesting experience we had with them was in India, mm. where we've run several hackathons with developers in India. And this is my partner, Steve, who, who has a really great network of developers in India and, and some history having worked there we included Pipedrive as one of the products in one of our hackathons. And one of the outcomes of the hackathon was an API between Pipedrive and Slack.
2: Uh Um,
0: And of course, at Fresco, we we were using both Pipedrive and Slack at the time, and we integrated that right away in our own workflow, right? So we were using this product from the hackathon. Um, And then several months later, Pipedrive itself turned that into one of their uh, product features and it built a whole API app store as well not only was that a really interesting experience mm. just to learn but importantly it helped shape their product roadmap globally not just in India and so I think that just shows that some of these experiences and learnings and lessons can have unexpected benefits and it doesn't have to be just specific to that country it can apply.
1: Right. to a global market for the hackathon did you like what partner with a school or how does he, how did you do that to yeah
0: yeah exactly yeah as, as you would expect we we had a local partner because similarly in india us trying to do it by ourselves wouldn't have been a, a good idea so it's a company called EZest, and as i mentioned my partner steve had some experience in india um, including working with with the leadership team there uh, so we have a great relationship with them and they're the ones that did all, all the, the hard stuff of organizing, recruiting developers, providing sleeping bags for the weekend, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and and our team gets to show up and, and do the fun bit um, and enjoy the hackathon.
1: Oh, interesting. So that kind of allowed the drive team to peek into the how the local people in India see how the product could work for the market. So it's really doing product market fit. Live in the hackathon, right? It's that, a bit of everything, clever.
0: right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for PipeDrive's product specifically, uh, you know, the developers are, are more of an ecosystem aspect. Um, that said, even through that, yes, they they could also see potential customer feedback. So it was all wrapped together in that, in that fairly intense experience of, of a hackathon.
1: Was that also? Did you also did, did the company also recruit talent through the hackathon or?
0: Yeah, so they have been they were a global company from very early on. Mm. Um, I don't know that any specific opportunities came out of that specific hackathon, but to give some context, one of their early markets that they were successful in was Brazil. Mm. So they ended up having quite a large Portuguese-speaking team, a mix of people from Portugal and, and Brazil and, and elsewhere. Uh, some of those actually ended up living in Estonia as well for a while. Oh wow! Uh, but then. Later on, they ended up expanding as well in Portugal for for some of their global customer success. So that just gives you a sense of how open they were to working with different cultures. Because if you go by stereotypes, Estonia and Brazil should be on different parts <laughs> of your culture map. And yet it was a wonderful fit. So I think, again, full credit to the team for navigating those cultural differences.
1: Interesting, yeah. I, I actually visited P- Pipe Drive too, in Estonia. Yeah. Like, right. Like, like maybe 2017 or something like that. And I know that they rebuilt their country digitally, right? Uh The, the whole government is digitized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super interesting. How about, has there been any changes like before and after COVID to the investment environment and the type of tech startups that, that are coming out?
0: Yeah, I think it's been a, a massive change. And... The context that I would give at this moment in time, maybe by next week it'll change, but let's say for this week, I would say there's two things we consider and I think most startup founders should be considering, certainly investors. One is the backdrop outside of technology and product cycles has become much more chaotic and dynamic and fluid, right? And I think that's different from the last 40 years. So Mm. for 40 years, there there was relatively predictable and and generally positive trends in a lot of those factors. Um, And now you get a mix. There's definitely some positive factors. There's some challenges, uh, but overall, it's changing, right? So I think any tech startup, any investor will need to realign and recalibrate their assumptions. Mm. Um, And what I would be particularly careful of is any investor that says, this worked in my startup 10 years ago or 20 years ago, because that's not going to be relevant, right? Not, not only is it outdated, but but the overall backdrop is, is totally different. So I think that's one. Um, and then the second one, and perhaps even more important, is that I think this technology product cycle is really important and is likely to change a lot, right? And so different people have have different views, right? Some people think, that what's going on now with AI and and other things is overhyped. And I get that perspective. I think some of the valuations probably don't make sense. So from a valuation perspective, it it can be a a little bit tricky. But if we think about the impact in society and and how product uh, changes will impact society, if anything, I think we're underestimating what that impact might be in 10 years or or 20 years time. Mm Right. Not only would I compare it to something like what happened with the iPhone and the smartphones in general, or even the internet, I might go back five, 600 years and say, this could be some of the most important product cycles in a few hundred years. Yeah. So even be- even before venture capital existed as, as an industry. So I think we're, we're at a really interesting time as, as venture capital investors, but also for society in general.
1: Yeah, it's it seems like these few years, things really accelerated. Just a few years ago, blockchain, and then it was NFT, and now every year is a like different narrative almost. And then people rushed into the space as well. And how about you? What are your thoughts on the recent trends? Crypto? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I ER you, 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 was like around.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think you've nailed it, that on the one hand, there it's almost like a fashion cycle, right? People are rushing from one fashion to another, um, and I think it's important to take a step back and look at what's what are the underlying changes? So first principles thinking of how these might interact. Um, so I think that's a good one to start with, with crypto and NFTs. Let's say that right now they're a little bit out of favor in terms of perception and that there's a focus on AI. But when you think about use cases of, of crypto and blockchain and NFTs, one of the interesting use cases is to deal with fake content Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and if you think about what's happening with ai technology now one of the things that's that's obviously going to happen is that there's going to be an exponential increase in fake content and it's going the voices the videos everything is going to feel real and and be extremely difficult to figure out so that sounds like a pretty interesting problem that blockchain might have some relevance for right
1: Yeah, you have AI Um,
0: girlfriends now. (laughs) So I do think what we're going to see is a little bit more interaction between these. And another issue is the interplay between centralization and decentralization. What we're seeing with AI is that extremely important decisions for possibly the future of humanity are being made by really small groups of people, sometimes as small as three people that, that mm. influence the trajectory of, of a company or even a country. And so decentralization acts as an important counterbalance to that. And so I do think that it's messy for sure. It, it has its own weaknesses and challenges, but open source software and, and decentralized approach in general is important in the bigger picture. So I would say even as... The markets and investors chase specific trends, and it's almost like a, a fashion element to it. Um, the underlying changes are actually quite important, and and so the opportunities for both founders and investors are real. And it's really it's ultimately a case by case decision for each investor and each founder to decide where do they want to play. Do they want to be fighting at the most competitive area that has a lot of potential upside, but also clearly a lot of competition and risks? Or are there specific opportunities that are overlooked by the fashion trends and yet could be just as important? Mm. Um, And so for us, we're probably a little bit more interested in the latter. Um, Of course, we're not ignoring the the obvious ideas either. Um, But I think for us, as a smaller fund, we're really looking at what aligns with our thesis and, and that's a core focus for us.
1: I remember a few years ago when I talked to you, you mentioned about how the world is getting smaller. So there's like clashes with cultures now, right? And in terms of product market fit, how do you think that in the future, are people going to be more similar, like on a global scale because we're so connected now or do companies still have to yeah, look at local cultures and adapt?
0: I, I think the the trend in the last few years definitely seems to be uh, favoring companies that really understand local nuances. Mm. And then even within a single country, that country itself might have quite different segments. If anything, I think the the markets are getting more fragmented. Mm. And that plays very well into AI because one of the sweet spots of AI technology is customization and personalization, right? You can roll out hundreds of languages potentially in a relatively quick timeframe. And I think that's aligned with some of the social trends that people are embracing more of of their local uh, cultures and unique interests, even as, back to your point about some of the homogenization, for sure there was, there will still be these mega brands and mega themes, so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they can coexist mm. that you you'll have these trends and memes, some of which last a little more than fifteen minutes and then very few which which keep going longer but ultimately, I think a lot of what people enjoy tends to be a little bit more unique and have, have a little bit more variety. So I, I would say that's probably the, the opportunity is to have more customization rather than a single unified, but mm. ultimately slightly bland approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. With, with what's happening with open AI now, I feel like this is like real time reality show, <laughs> which would not happen like just a few years ago right? So it's like the, the entire globe is watching at the same time. So are there, so what are the biggest mistakes that you think tech stops should avoid when when they expand to another market?
0: So when it comes to expanding to, to markets or thinking about being a cross-border global company, um, I would start with two obvious things. But yeah, they're still so common as, as mistakes that I think it's worth focusing on the basics. The the basics are are important. So the number one is getting the right team on the ground. Mm. Uh, And I'll use an example there from my own personal history where it didn't work out. Um, So this was our hedge fund business, PMA, where we had a successful business in Asia, right in Hong Kong. And a lot of the team was mostly from Europe. So you'd think, okay, a lot of people from Europe logical to expand into London and build up a European kind of version of what we were doing in Asia. Made a ton of sense, that team got hired, but it just didn't work. And, and it wasn't necessarily that any individual person on that team was the issue. We, we just weren't able to, to execute and figure out the right team on the ground in London. And so that's very humbling, right? To think that you can have a bunch of people from the region from even the country, and yet still end up with the wrong team. So I think it's really important to get the team right. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of startups, what we find is the first country hire they make is the wrong hire. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just, it's almost like get it out of your system, right? Assume the first person you hire is going to be a mistake, learn from your mistakes, and then do a reboot. Um, And I think when we see companies have that honesty with themselves, um, they tend to do better. So that that'd be the first one. Um, the second one is, going back to your point about localization, I do think there's a tendency outside of the, the big countries to group mid-sized and smaller countries together in, in some sort of region. Mm. Right? And also living in Singapore right now, I'll pick Southeast Asia as the example. A lot of companies from outside of Southeast Asia talk about expanding to Southeast Asia think? as a market, right? It's all such thing as Southeast Asia. Countries. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't exist. It's a concept that's invented by people who probably don't live here. And, and what you find when you get on the ground is yes, each country is unique. Hmm. And so I think when we look at how that plays out over time, I would use Uber as an example of a company that was financially successful, right? They were able to manage their investment into the region and turn that into an equity stake in the eventual local winners. But ultimately, given the financial resources that Uber had and the success they had, they definitely could have done better and and would have done better. And it's a specific issue that I think really differentiated the local players was flexibility around payment options, Mm. because at the time there was just a different requirement and different set of needs for local payment compared to you know, what what Uber was was trying to force in their product. And so that was a, a clear example to me of a company that still did okay, but could have done better. Yeah. Uh, and of course, many companies don't even reach the okay stage because they <laughs> they didn't even penetrate the local markets because they didn't have the resources like an Uber.
1: I, I remember Uber came to Hong Kong was in Hong Kong and they wanted to go into China and uh, they had so much money they were like giving away <laughs> discounts and everything. Back then, China didn't have people don't use credit cards, right? Yeah, so that that exactly. was the, the the point, right? Oh, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, the right team and uh, don't group countries together for team for startup teams like going to a foreign market. Like, how do they, where do they start to because People might not know, know the language, the culture. How do they get to find partners even?
0: So I, I would say for us, yes, we're, we're a global fund and, and we have a global perspective, but we never, ever push our companies to expand beyond the market. Mm. So there always has to be some sort of thoughtful review. Does this even make sense? Mm. And in a lot of cases, the answer is no, and especially if a company is operating in a large market like the U.S., it's a it's a great market, so you don't necessarily need to expand. Um, but let's say if a company is operating in Canada, which mm-hmm. is next door to the U.S., but still has you know some differences in terms of culture and approach, then step one is to identify okay, does this make sense? Step two is then the timing, mm-hmm. right? And, and and I think a key issue is making sure that there's a balance between the go-to-market speed, because of of course, a lot of times speed is important, um, and yet not overstretching the resources uh, and and ensuring that you can execute on the ground. Um, So it it is a fine balance there. Um, And in general, it makes a little bit more sense after you've just added more resources, right? Which typically means raising a larger Mm -hmm. financial round, Um, Because I think where a lot of companies run into problems is they hire that one person and that one person is not really working out well, but they don't have enough resources to change or expand. so They're stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would say getting the resources right is the first one. Uh, And and then the second one is going back to the, the Uber example and companies that have more than enough resources. It's very tempting to do the blitz go big we're going to just hire a lot of people at one time approach mm. because you finally have the resources right, right. So that's that's very tempting but i would i would say that taking a slightly more measured approach similar to when figuring out if you have product market fit originally so you're hiring a few people building in that flexibility to know you're going to have make some mistakes of course, right. So, so there will be some mistakes at the beginning, but then before scaling up the team, make sure you really know what you're doing in that local market, or okay. else, yeah, you you will end up in that situation where you're spending lots of money, and the locals will take your money, but you won't get much of business value in, in return.
1: Do you advise your tech startups like how to do product market fit in in foreign markets?
0: Yeah, we do. I think ultimately it's really case by case. Mm. So that is exactly the kind of thing that a, a template approach doesn't tend to work for. And I would just say, especially going back to that point I made about the changing environment, right? The, the global backdrop when it comes to regulations and other things is much more dynamic and uncertain now than, than even five years ago. So I would say it's really case by case
1: okay i see would part of it be like talking to a lot of users or customers
0: um of course talking to your users and customers i would say the the thing that is a challenge for a lot of founders when they when they talk to customers or users even within their own country is pulling the answers that they hope to get
1: out of the users
0: right yeah leading the witness (laughs) Uh, and then when you go to a different culture that gets even trickier because one of the the big cultural differences is how people get feedback Mm. right and and so as an example with the japan right (laughs) yes well japan is japan is an obvious one but let's talk about the u.s because this i think this one throws a lot of people for, for a surprise as well which is people think that like consumers and users in the u.s are going to be very critical or be very, you know, loud or aggressive that's the stereotype, right? Because that's what's on online, that's what's on the media. But most people in the US are actually super polite and mm. really hesitant to critique somebody else, especially from a product perspective. Mm. So they will tell you it's good. And if someone tells you your product is good, what they probably mean is I would never use it. <laughs> But unless you know that's a a very typical response, you wouldn't know to ask deeper. You think, oh, check, this user must love my product.
1: Yes, yes. I think
0: that's one that stands out to me. A lot of people don't really know how to do market research, even in the US.
1: Yeah, because the product is the baby of the startup and nobody wants to hear your baby's ugly.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: and nobody, especially if you go to Silicon Valley, nobody's going to tell you your product is terrible, right? There's very few people that will Mm -hmm. say that directly as if you're asking them for that feedback so i do think you really need to understand the culture not only in the country but even let's say in the case of the u.s within specific cities right because different meeting somebody from new york and meeting somebody from san francisco that's a totally different conversation
1: in order for a tech startup to go global it does sound like if a founder has more multicultural background have lived globally in different countries would be a, a plus. Would, would that be the case?
0: One would think that you have a broader perspective. Uh, and I, I think it's no accident that a lot of successful companies are started by immigrant founders. Mm. Right? When, once you unleash that potential of someone who who's really driven, there, there's some pretty amazing things that can happen. So I think that's on the founder and startup side and then even on the ceo side of larger companies so take microsoft for example satya nadella right that that background that story is really inspiring that you can be the ceo of microsoft with not the traditional background that used to be the case so i do think that type of international globally minded perspective is useful for any kind of business mm even if you don't have to expand overseas, right? It, it doesn't mean you have to push your company to be global. It can give a founder a, a slightly broader view, even in one single country.
1: Have, have you seen it worked in other countries? Because U.S. is unusual where there are a lot of immigrants and it's very it emphasized on equality and, and multiculturalism. Has it worked in other countries where a non-local becomes the CEO?
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question uh, that's probably more for politicians and leaders of these other countries about how they want to build their entrepreneurial ecosystems. Mm. All right. And so I think it's a real challenge for a lot of other countries to emulate what the U.S. has, right? that there's, there's certain things that the U.S. does differently. Many of those things aren't necessarily positive. But some of those things are extremely positive when it comes to entrepreneurship and building highly successful companies. So I do think other countries can learn some lessons from the U.S. about how to give opportunities to people from other cultures and backgrounds. Um, not saying that the U.S. is, is perfect in all the ways that it deals with immigrants, but at the end of the day, when it comes to giving opportunities um, for those types of entrepreneurial people, it it is pretty special. I would say when you look at other countries, it's probably a little bit mixed, right? So one is there are specific countries like Singapore, for example, that are actively recruiting foreign talent. Now these small countries like Singapore, the goal isn't necessarily to sell in the local market. The goal is to build a larger business. So I do think there are those places. And then for larger countries like China, like India, I think they are founders with foreign experience mm. who also understand the local market. Yes. I think there are those opportunities. While if there's somebody who has no experience in the local market at all, it might be more challenging realistically.
1: And have you seen after the pandemic, all these, um, like where, where's money flowing? <laughs> has it changed? Cause before the pandemic, I think, Oh, China market and all that. But, it seems things have changed a bit right now.
0: Right. I think overall venture has less money flowing to it now than 2021. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. I think there was there's some over exuberance and mm-hmm. people throwing money at things that probably shouldn't have been funded. That to me is actually quite healthy. Uh, going forward, I think there's a couple of interesting questions about the, the capital to talent relationship. So one is, I think increasingly we're going to see more AI first companies where the AI is a core part of the talent and workflow, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: right? So those companies will end up likely being leaner and and smaller. And I think for companies and, and entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley and from the US, that's a mindset they've been working with for a while. Yeah. In other parts of Asia in particular, I think that's gonna be a shift, right? Mm Because in a lot of Asia, the way to scale companies historically has been just to hire lots more people. Right. that's been a a fairly typical approach. So I think there is a bit of a mindset shift already taking place Mm -hmm. that the scaling of those companies is perhaps gonna be less people and more technology. So I think that's one. And then there's an implication from that and this is more of a hypothesis. We'll see if this is true. But my hypothesis is that those companies that are being built now, in terms of their need for capital, they won't necessarily require the billions and billions of dollars of funding.
2: Mm.
0: Right. So that they will be more capital efficient, which I think is great for venture overall. Um, and then. Secondly, the implication for those later stage mega rounds that we saw, my view is that will increasingly become a secondary market, right? So the early talent will look at those types of investors for liquidity. Early investors will look at those investors for liquidity, but there will be enough institutional memory to realize that the company doesn't need to raise $5 billion, That actually, that creates more problems. For the company by raising that as primary capital so i do think that late stage capital will change the most and it will shift more towards being a secondary driven market mm. and i think that the, the interesting question there will be how much of that will that actually be a private secondary market versus people still wanting to go back to an ipo right, right? And i think that'll all that'll always be a question that that'll go back and forth as to which entrepreneurs want to be a listed business and, and which ones will embrace um, a less liquid but but also slightly more flexible approach of, of having secondary transactions in the private market
1: and now with a there are really only have, have you seen the uh, SP magnificent seven there are only seven companies in this world like including amazon google meta that are actually making money versus the 493 um, and unless you're a huge company, you, you don't have deep tech AI, right? You're applying AI using, I don't know, ChatGPT and all that. So how, how could these small companies compete?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question that I think, let me flip it around and, and say that for startups, most startups probably shouldn't compete with the big tech giants. So if you find yourself competing directly with one of these big companies, you, you have to know how you're going to win. So I would say competing with them maybe not the optimal strategy. That said, people talk about the application layer as as being less explored, and I think that's a massive opportunity. Right. Mm. So if you think about all of the the, the low hanging fruit right now is all of the existing workflow, right, and it's it's essentially a race between startups and existing incumbents. Some incumbents like Microsoft, were are fast enough. And they have realized that they need to be much more aggressive, right? There are not that many incumbents that think that way mm. you know, for, for a lot of reasons. And even if they think that way, they're not able to execute on that strategy. So I do think startups have an inherent speed advantage there. Right. The second thing is perhaps the bigger opportunity is fully native AI applications that we we had just haven't even thought about. And, and just to give you an example of a specific, I would call it feature, many people call it a bug of, of some of the generative AI, is hallucinations. Right? A lot oh, of the discussion is, thing that is, 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 yeah, like how do we reduce hallucinations and, and how do we make it more reliable? Um, but I think there will be multiple companies that flip that around and say, how do we embrace hallucinations and build scalable businesses out of it and if i had the answer I, I i would potentially try to do it myself i don't have the answer but i'm looking for the people that are thinking in that way that are trying to look at what are the purely native opportunities to this technology and product cycle that are not just about reinventing existing workflow but fundamentally transforming our, our relationship with technology those are really interesting opportunities And the reality is for the big tech companies, it looks like they have an insurmountable edge, but each of them has their own weaknesses. Mm. And if you just think about even the history of OpenAI, the reason OpenAI was founded was because there was a perception that Google would dominate everything and that was it.
2: Right. And
0: look at a few years later, (laughs) Google was actually playing catch up in terms of the business potential
1: Mm. even
0: though everyone agrees their, 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 their contribution to the technology has been amazing.
1: Okay. So one last thing to summarize, what is one takeaway that you would want the audience to know about?
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of times with, with entrepreneurs and, and VC funds, a lot, a lot of people may go down the path to say, oh, I missed it. Even with AI right now, people might say, oh, it's too late. Mm. This is, The opportunity is is past, Um, but I would say the next five to 10 years in terms of product and technology opportunities, they might be as exciting as ever. So I would say that's on the optimistic side, that's an amazing opportunity. And at the same time, I don't want to downplay the risks and and other challenges. So I think when it comes to building these companies, it's really important to have the, the optimistic, positive mindset about what could happen and at the same time do your disaster planning. run <laughs> your risk scenarios because the unexpected twists and turns are also likely to be a little bit wilder than they used to be
1: yeah um, so you know, be
0: prepared now. for both
1: yeah, yeah. Now now that ChatGPT came up with customized <laughs> ChatGPT, like all of a sudden all these AI companies that are building on the original one you y- have to change overnight, right? Yeah, and it's
0: gonna be different for every company, but I think just whether it's a VC fund or whether it's a startup without any VC funding, always have a number of scenarios and be ready to to move quickly because I, I don't think that the environment is highly or easily predictable right now. Uh, the, oppor- the opportunities are real, and I think they are going to be massive. So I think it's a great time to be a founder. It actually is a great time to be an investor, um, but it's not going to be easy. And so yeah. I think it is going to require both being thoughtful and, and, of course, working hard.
1: Okay. Just one last question. This is new. Sure. <laughs> uh, what do you think about with in, in uh, your VC investing? Are you guys going to adopt tokenization, like using blockchain to invest instead of the traditional pen and paper way?
0: All right. So the curveball question for the end. I like it. Um, (laughs) So we, like a lot of other investors, we reviewed a lot of what was going on in crypto and and different parts of the cycle. And I think there's a lot of potential there for sure. Mm. There are, of course, some obvious challenges. I'll put all the fraud stuff to one category on its own, right? So let's put pure fraud into its own bucket. Um, We should obviously not have that that level of fraud. That's a massive challenge. But beyond that, I think one of the other, perhaps more subtle challenges, or depending on how you talk to perhaps more obvious, is when you have instant liquidity, Mm. it can be very tempting for those original investors to engage in pump and dumps, right? And and that's unfortunately uh, a, a common pattern in a lot of crypto related things. So I do think figuring that out as a society is really important because the last thing we want is a financial product which is allowing a certain group of investors or founders or other operators to trick retail investors into holding what might have been something useful, but it ultimately completely worthless. So I do think dealing with that inherent misalignment with instant liquidity is important, mm. right? And I think there's various approaches to deal with that, but I do think that's an ongoing challenge where that doesn't have to be a fraud, right? Mm. It can be an actual product, but it, it, given the nature of financial markets and incentives, that that's going to come up as an issue over and over again when you have instant liquidity.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Titus. And uh, yeah, how can our audience contact you?
0: They can go to our website. We have a form. I can't promise we answer every input into the form because we get too many things. But we do look at everything. And so if something is an obvious fit, we do reply and follow up. And, and so we do actually read everything. So that would be the, the simplest and easiest way to follow
1: up. Okay. All right. Thank you, Titus. T-
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, you. <laughs>